Before we get started, a quick disclaimer. This podcast is for entertainment purposes only. Nothing you hear is an offer or a solicitation to buy or sell any investment. And with that, hello and welcome to the Rangely Capital Podcast. I'm Andrew Walker, a portfolio manager at Rangely. And with me, as always, is my co-host and Rangely's founder, Kristen Muth. We do this podcast about once a month where we kind of talk through the most interesting things we've read and the most interesting things that are going on in event-driven land and merger land and the business world. So, Chris, today, Halloween's coming up. I kind of wanted to talk to you about some very high-end M&A. And then at the end, I thought we could flip over and talk a little bit about the NCA allowing students to benefit from the use of their name, image, etc. But let's start with high-end M&A. And I think the two things that are driving this discussion is over the weekend, we got word and actually Tiffany's put out a press release that Tiffany's, the famous American jewelry brand, had rejected a takeover offer from Louis Vuitton at $120 per share. That's a pretty big premium. It w- it's about a 33% premium to where Tiffany's had been trading only a week before when rumors kind of started getting out that Louis Vuitton might be looking at them. Tiffany shares are currently trading at $125 per share. So that's obviously higher than $120. So people are thinking that either Louis Vuitton will sweeten their offer or someone will come out with another bid for Tiffany's. And the other kind of high-end M&A thing I want to talk about is just a couple weeks ago, uh, Sotheby's, the famous auction house, agreed to get bought out for a whopping 61% premium. So we're thinking, you know, you've got auction houses, you've got Tiffany's, you've got Louis Vuitton. What else could a super rich person want? Lots of M&A in the high-end world. My question to you is, what do you think of all this high-end M&A? Well, Sotheby's is a funny example for me. I was- uh, Is it Sotheby's? I thought it was- I have no, I thought it was Sotheby's and I no, no, I like, I like wrong, how you, so. I, it's one of those things that I read and don't say, so I'll go with yours, no, but let's um, go with yours. Cause I'm big on all ticker, this. Yeah. Uh, is, uh, something that I had been from time to time short in the past as just valuation. Plus it's the kind of stuff rich people buy when they've run out of all the other things to buy. So I've always thought of itself was toppy. And then of course it got bought and it was uh, one of two things that I've ever been short that I narrowly missed being short at uh, when the deal spec and then announcement came in. And so that was good to have missed that. But yeah, no, I think in terms of a indicator kind of high, but it's a monopoly-ish duopoly and a smart buyer. And so he might make it uh, make it work. So the the buyer, correct me if I'm wrong, is the CEO of Altice Europe, which is, I mean, I think they've made, they built their track record on really creative M&A. I think they've had some issues with M&A in the recent past, but you know, obviously they bought Cablevision and that deal has turned out to be an absolute home run for him. Uh, he kind of models himself as the European John Malone. I was going to so, say, yeah. But you know, I, I agree with you. I think the first thing you think when you see Sotheby's, this high-end auction house, which, you know, a high-end auction house is going to have a lot of operating leverage. You see it gets, gets bought out for a massive 61% premium. The first thing you think is, oh, this, this is a market top. You know, mm-hmm. auction houses are, you know, they peak when the market's peaking because mm-hmm. that's when people have money to spend. You pay a 61% premium for that. That is, that is just classic market top stuff. And then a couple weeks later, you see, hey, Hey, Tiffany's high-end luxury jewelry, getting getting a buyout bid for a huge premium. You kind of think, oh, everything's lining up. If we have a recession or like a stock market crash in the next year, people are going to point back and say, these were the signs of a market top is what's interesting there. The other thing about just one last little thing on Sotheby's and the luxury kind of uh, market generally is frequently these are companies with 
founder, proprietor, family relationships that you need to have a a fairly dexterous political touch handling the right way or they will not sell or they won't sell to you. And so being kind of the person kind of already in that community some way or another helps a great deal. Yep. Yep. So I I think you mentioned when you were talking about bids bid, as we'll say, the person acquiring them, Altice's, uh, Altice Europe CEO, has a history of pretty pretty good M&A. I think he's respected as acquirer. And then when you look, Louis Vuitton, you're closer to them than I am. But I, I mean, this man is, the CEO is often thought of kind of as Europe's, not Warren Buffett maybe, but he's obviously got an incredible track record at luxury brand M&A. Third richest person in the world. Louis Vuitton stock, I looked at, it's outperformed the S&P 500 in Berkshire over like the past 30 years. I mean, he's got a great record of M&A. And if he's bidding for Tiffany's, you you kind of give him the benefit of the doubt despite premium in a pretty hot market. So I think you know, we talked about Europe's uh, John Malone and Europe's Warren Buffett. I think it is justified. He's one of the greatest CEOs in the world. He's brilliant. He actually borrows from some Buffett vernacular in terms of how he thinks about brands specifically, talking about what they're worth in 10 years and that increment. A lot of the French media, or at least the French media he doesn't own, describe him (laughs) as Anglo-Saxon, which is not uh, apparently in France a compliment, by which I think that they mean that he's just really quite capitalist in how he looks at competitors, how he looks at employees. He runs a very tight shop, and his kids are involved to some extent now, so there'll be succession issues, but it's an extremely well-run company. They manage brands well, and and uh, it would be a it would be a big improvement in terms of Tiffany operations if they did that deal. It is funny to think like Louis Vuitton runs an extremely tight shop, a frugal shop, because like your kind of classic thing when you think of it is someone with too much money to spend just buying tons of it, or they own they own Don Perry own champagne. If I, I remember correctly, you know your classic thing is a banker on an expense account just popping seven <laughs> bottles of it or something. It's like the company that's supplying that excess is actually run very very frugally. He he only takes off half hour meals. He uh, he works hard. He likes nice things, but in kind of an understated way personally. But his brands. Are are perfectly set up for Middle Eastern and Asian tastes. If you look at kind of the uh, interests in how his brands are set up. Also, they're very good for as the luxury market has grown and it's grown much faster than global uh, growth overall. Um, It also kind of bifurcates more and more amongst brands. So having all of the different uh, brand distinctions really helpful uh, so that if you are very, very rich, you don't want to slum it with the people who are only very rich. And so he has kind of a separate store for you. And then if you're very, very, very rich, he's got another store for you there. Yeah. And so he, I, I think, would do well with this. His biggest business regrets are the couple that got away. Both Gucci and Hermes got away from him. Gucci to his biggest rival in the world, uh, who, when he offered $100 uh, million for uh, the restoration of Notre Dame, immediately everybody knew he was going to co- come in offering $200 million to uh, outstage him. Hermes uh, got away. One of his early acquisitions tried to demerge uh, once they became part that he uh, dexterous about companies on the way in, but then runs them to maximize their value in ways that sometimes the people uh, don't expect uh, to have to deal with. His his failures in terms of M&A have generally been American and generally been not the very tippy-top end of the, uh, of the luxury world um, where he struggled the most kind of in the Tiffany's category. So it's conceivable he'll, you know, he's seen their operations, especially with regards to diamonds. He knows he could add a ton of value there 
make them much more worthwhile, use them for some of his other lines. That's what he really wants. The the label itself, I think he could do well with. I think it's classic. I think he could do well with it. And he could do well with it in his properties, uh, including Belmont properties. But but this is a uh, uh, want, not need. Yeah. You know, I and speaking of want, not need, I, I'm a little surprised, you know, a big premium this point in the cycle because I, I, obviously you've got a lot of background with Louis. Hey, did you read any books on it? Is there any books you recommend on it on him, or is this um, just from? I, fo- I followed him really my whole business career. Um, I can't think. I'll, I'll come back to you on that. I don't. We, think we can I've post it in show notes. Yeah, or if, we've, yeah. if I can come to that. I've I, I, like you know obviously I, I've known that he's got a great track record. I haven't done that much, but I did read a lot of the Tiffany stuff earlier today. And the thing that jumped out at me was you know Tiffany's is undergoing. I don't want to call it a full out turnaround, but they're certainly struggling. They're investing into their properties. They're trying to turn some stuff around. I was reading their Q2 call and they immediately say Hong Kong is a critical market for us. It is our fourth largest market. And obviously there's issues with Hong Kong. Japan raised their sales tax recently. And Japan, I think, is their third largest market. So all of their markets are kind of undergoing some turmoil, which I love buying in the face of turmoil and uncertainty. But, you know, big premium, big multiple in the face of turmoil and uncertainty kind of don't add up together. So I'm just a little surprised by the timing and everything. What do you think about that? Yeah, no, I think uh, also Tiffany is not necessarily the one you would want in extreme turmoil, while some of the very high end uh, jewelry and other products might actually do really well with people trying to get uh, money out of an area. But uh, no, I think that they're going to be disciplined and careful. And there probably are actually a few other ways to do this deal in terms of eventually getting uh, getting what they want. Yeah. So let's talk about let's talk about Tiffany's uh, Louis Vuitton. You know, obviously, Tiffany's rejected a bid at 120. I think like right when we were about to tape this podcast, the New York Post came out with an article that said Louis Vuitton is going to be very disciplined in their bid, which I don't think that's shocking to us. But how do you think this how do you think this plays out? Do you think Tiffany's trades hand competitor or Louis? What, what type of price would you think? He reached a bit for Belmont, which was the last deal that we looked at. We were Belmont shareholders uh, at the time and outbid a very large cast. But that was kind of premier assets that he long wanted and had much more relevance to his other brands. You know, this he, he certainly came in with some extra. I mean, he could bump it by $5 if he really wanted it. He could bump it by 15 You know, I think that the likelihood that there's somebody else that comes in at this point is low. I think the greater likelihood is that they back off, they let the market price come back, and then they kind of let the reaction prove that there's not another bidder, which I suspect there's not, and that shareholders would be eager to sell to him, which I suspect they would be. And that if you had some shareholder pressure at $100 or $90 a share to re-engage, that's where he would have stronger hands. So I think time serves him well. He's somebody who's good at rushing when there's a sense of urgency and being patient when there's not. And I think he can afford to be patient here. Yeah, no, I, I agree with you. You know, I think he's in a nice spot. I, I think when you look at Tiffany's, the if I remember correctly, the CEO uh, comes used to be the CEO at the COO at Bulgari, which they bought in 2011. The Bulgari CEO who sold to Louis is on the Tiffany's board. So obviously he's got a lot of context there. I think you're, you know, I think if you're him and your first bid is $120 per share, most people don't make their kind of best bid first. He's probably got another five to dollars in his pocket. But I'm also with you. Look, he's the third richest person in the world. He's got a great acquisition track record. And one of the ways you do that is you're disciplined on price. You don't bid against yourself. So I'd be surprised if he comes back with a 130 bid and Tiffany's rejects, if he's willing to go much higher than that. I agree with you. I think he lets the market kind of 
settle out and then have the shareholders pressure like, hey, why is there stock at 87 when we were getting $130 cash bid two months ago? Mm-hmm. I think I agree with you on the other bidder. You know, the one thing, and I, we talked about this before the podcast, and I'd be interested in your thoughts. You know, you look at, I think one of our big investing theses is in sports teams, which we've talked a lot about in this pod, is look, if you want to buy the New York Knicks, right? There's only one Knicks. When they come up for sale, you're going to play, pay a premium. If you want to buy an auction house like Sotheby's or Bid or whatever we're going to call it, there's only two of them in the world. When you buy it, like you only get one shot at it and then you buy it and all of your friends come to you for that and you, you're you kind of known from ever there for, for all time as the person who owns that, right? Uh, Jeff Bezos with the Washington Post. I think he bought that for a lot of reasons, but I don't think it hurts his personal brand that he owns kind of one of the two best newspapers in the countries. So I do wonder, you know, if you are a very rich person. Tiffany's is going to trade for 15 to $16 billion. You know, If you can buy that for the rest of the time, people say, oh, that's the guy who owns Tiffany's. Mm-hmm. That does seem to have some brand value. Or if you're kind of another big European luxury conglomerate, if you buy Tiffany's, you are the person. Does that provide a brand halo that's kind of worth something a little bit topping, a little exclusivity premium? Does that make sense? Yeah. No, I think I think brand-wise it does. In fact, the, the, the cachet part is the part that's probably the least interesting to him right now, where I think, I think he has, you know, a, a lot that he can do on the back office side of it uh, with other brands. Yeah, no, that could, that could bring somebody else in. I don't think it's going to. And I think the best home for it is really the slot just south of Bulgari within uh, Louis Vuitton. Yeah, no, I a hundred percent agree. I, I think he's probably, probably the best bidder. I'd be surprised if it goes for more than this. And I, I think you're right. I, I don't think there's much more to bid here. And if Tiffany's holds out, I think he lets the market do its work and uh, shareholders get pressured. Anyway, move on to NCAA. Absolutely. Great. So uh, just yesterday, the NCAA uh, announced that they were looking at allowing players to profit from their images. We've talked a lot about sports and media on this podcast, so this kind of isn't in our traditional wheelhouse, but I, I thought it might be interesting, you know, get your thoughts. We can talk about it for five minutes. So, so what do you think about what's going on with NCA looking at allowing players to profit from their image? It's great. Whenever there is a profitable enterprise where somebody's saying, it's not about the money. What it normally means is that they want somebody else to work for them for free. And it's always about the money when somebody says it's not. When something is very valuable. We already have a money system. We already have a way to use price. And when you take away price, but keep the value, you usually end with BS and that there are ways to, you know, oh, we'll get boosters to uh, maybe loan you a car and then forget to take the car back or something like that. There's a lot of friction. There's a lot of dishonesty, sometimes illegality, but it is, uh, people think of money and something as corrupting and it makes it less pure. Well, money makes things a lot purer than the alternative when you have value without compensation. Yeah, no, look, I'm with you. It, it's insane to me that NCA athletes aren't allowed to profit. And I think it creates a lot of huge inefficiencies in the marketplace. You, know, you and I were talking about it, but there used to be a very popular NCA football game that the NCA had to disallow because it was putting players' images out there and they couldn't be seen getting paid for that. I mean, that raked in hundreds of millions of dollars a year and that game's gone because the NCA doesn't want to pay players for their images. Like, that's a huge inefficiency. You can think of tons of other examples. And, uh, you know, it, it's just insane, the ruling, the rulings around this. I, I think it's a step in the right direction. And honestly, it comes. it's almost too little too late for me, but yeah. at least they're going there. It is. It's, it is progressive, actually, in two uh, dimensions. One, if you're dealing with free labor, the actual benefit 
beneficiaries within the school systems ends up being much older than the than the athletes, obviously. But I also think there's going to be a broader distribution of profits from placements at the college level than we've ever seen amongst pros. Pros is such a superstar model where the very top people make so much more than even the very successful kind of broader group of professional athletes. But there's not any particular pull of, I mean, the professional sports really are just an accumulation of individuals, but they're the sports team connections. If you're anybody on a winning sports team, I think you're going to have market value. And I think that that money is going to be spread widely, spread widely among some people who need it, spread widely among some people who are not going to necessarily have super long careers. And I think you're even going to get a decent amount of value to people who won't even become professional after school. I think it's going to be really interesting because the one thing with college sports teams is it's college, college sports and college programs are the one place where if you're a billionaire, you might donate $100 million to a sports program to spruce it up or something, you know, versus if you're a billionaire who's a, who's a huge fan of the Steelers, you'd probably love to buy them, but you're not just going to go donate $100 million to the Steelers. And, you know, I, I'm with you. I could see if you're a huge Oklahoma State booster, you're going to go say, hey, no one, everyone on this team, I'm going to give a $5,000 stipend to. Now, that does create a bifurcating world of the haves and the have-nots where the major power p- programs are going to have much more money for athletes and recruiting than the others. But guess what? We're already there. Alabama pays Nick Saban, what is it, like $10, $12 million a year versus a, a small Power 5 conference school might pay their coach $800,000. Like their coach is going to make less than the third defensive coordinator at Alabama. Like I, I think it's going to be good for everyone. And I think uh, it'll create some really interesting marketing opportunities. Obviously, lots of opportunities for the players. I think it's great. We both love it. I think there's a couple controversies here. I don't have a huge amount of deference to the other side of. I think that um, there is this idea that there is this amateur purity versus uh, selling out as a professional. That doesn't really economically make a lot of sense anymore. And most people's lives, I think, at this point don't kind of operate with that pure distinction. I don't think it's a distinction with much of a difference. The other is, and this will bother a lot of people involved in the academy, is how valuable sports are compared to other things that go on at college. And I think that everybody's image should be their property. It should be something that they can capitalize on. And if somebody had a particular enthusiasm for a viola player or something, that's great. The demands, the market says that people love sports, people care about sports, and people care a lot more about sports than a lot of other things that have value at colleges. That'll bother people. But is what it is. Hey, I'm with you. Like, do I wish the best teacher in the world made as much money as LeBron James? Absolutely. But it's just kind of an unfortunate thing that LeBron James skills scale a lot better and a lot more people are interested in paying for it for entertainment. Like, yeah, it sucks that the star the star quarterback's going to, you know, he could probably make 500000 a million dollars per year on his image and he's going to make more than some of his teachers. But that, that's just the market speaking. And, you know, it's his money. And I think he should get to it's his image. And I think he should get to capitalize on his skills where he has the chance. Absolutely. Uh, any last thoughts before we wrap up? None. Great. Uh, Halloween's coming up. Hope you guys have a great Thanksgiving and we'll talk to you guys at the end of November. Bye.